0: Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness tracker that provides daily insight into your recovery, your strain, and your sleep. You might have seen it on the wrist of Rory as he won the Tour Championship or other Tour players. I had to find out more, so I reached out, got my own band, talked to some of the folks at Whoop, and I was blown away. And then, lucky enough, they wanted to support and sponsor the podcast and let more folks know about it as well. Here are the three things you need to know. There's three metrics, strain, recovery, and sleep. Strain is for those that are looking to track more than just steps. Track how strong your day is from start to finish. And this is key, get insight into how much you exert yourself during training. The second one is recovery. That is so you can get daily insight into how ready your body is to perform by looking at some biometrics such as heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and sleep performance. And the last one is sleep. It's all about optimizing the way that you sleep by getting target sleep times based on how strenuous your day was and your performance goals. You can monitor your sleep stages, cycles, time in bed, actual sleep, sleep efficiency, and so much more. And, you know, the best players in the world are paying attention to this, as we found out from the WHOOP CEO, Will Ahmed.
1: You know, Justin Thomas was telling me how obsessed he is with sleep. This is a guy who will just get up in the middle of dinner to go to bed if he feels like he's not going to bed at the appropriate time because he knows that he has to get a certain number of hours of sleep in order to feel that recovered in order to feel, you know, peak on the day of the tournament or, you know, even on the weekends, right? right. Uh, he was saying that he actually had a green recovery on the Sunday of leading the BMW tournament. I think that's pretty cool, right? you know, normally when you're leading the tournament, you're going to feel an additional level of stress. In his case, it was the opposite because he's figured out ways to to train his body and, and to use Whoop.
0: Definitely check this out and learn more about Whoop. It's W-H-O-O-P.com. Use the code G-S-L for 15% off your membership. That is G-S-L. Definitely go check out Whoop.com. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking to leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Cordy Walker. I am your host. I hope you're having a great week. It is a president's cup week. If you are listening to this, when it goes live, you find me down in my home office here watching the tournament on screen as I figured we would get this incredible podcast ready to go and out to y'all with Scott Fawcett. If you don't know Scott, he is, uh, you might have seen him on Twitter. He is a course strategist. I don't know if that would be the best way to describe him, but he has come up with some systems and concepts to understand where to aim, what clubs to hit, better understanding what course strategy should be based on data. And I've enjoyed getting to know Scott over the years. We've had him on the podcast, I've met and hung out with him and recorded this chat after we actually got to play the back nine at Pinehurst, and it was a really fun time. We had some good chat, so we just continue that over in the podcast room and recorded this conversation. Not much more intro is needed. This was a great chat. You are really going to enjoy this, and if you're interested in Decade, make sure to go to the link or to the post along with this podcast over on golfsciencelab.com. You get all the details and all that good stuff. Otherwise, let's dive right in. back to the podcast return guest Scott Fawcett we had the privilege of playing played the back 9 of Pinehurst number 2 yesterday and one of the interesting conversations that we started having was about tee shots and everybody's talking about how here at Pinehurst you've got these waste areas really small fairways hard to hit like you got to hit the fairways right like that, yeah, that'd sure. be a common line right so to do that you would take a 4 or 5 iron right and um, we talked about how that would be a bad idea because Although there are waste areas, you're not going to lose the ball. You're not going to necessarily have a, a penalty shot mm-hmm. in the benefits of hitting the driver. I thought that was fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean that's kind of obviously where we talk about all the time. Obviously, I have a lot of discussions with the golf course architects, and it's been something I've never really, never even really paid attention to, even though I decipher golf courses all the time. But it was interesting in seeing you know the, the shape and where they've got the different uh, you know just waste areas and stuff, and how it does totally. It's totally different than rough. And actually in, in going back to like a four or five iron, cause obviously we played the up tees. And so that's kind of the point of the architects is seeing the design, how it really, where we played from wasn't kind of correct for our distance, if you will. And the golf course is just impossible. Like I honestly, I, it would not have been easier from further back, I assume, but where we were hitting driver to, like it was super narrow. It's not where it was designed to actually be hit. And, Man, and then in thinking about a, a typical amateur golfer who even is playing from the correct tees where we were, that would have meant that they are hitting driver out there and still got like 180 in all those holes. Like <laughs> This golf course is impossible. Then the course rating is only 70.3. Like None of it added up to me, but it just shows you kind of how hard it is to figure out what's right and how to actually rate golf courses. But we were saying you should hit driver still, though. 100%. I mean, again, like if we were to hit four iron off the tee back to where the, the the turn was if you will or the the wider part of the fairway I don't, you're not giving up but i'm gonna have you know by definition my is 220 my driver's 300 i'm gonna have 80 yards further in i'm gonna miss the green like these greens are so small i'm gonna miss the green so often that it's just gonna be a bad spot and even if i hit it into the recovery area i've got a chance of it being a decent line if nothing else it's probably gonna be a bad lie you're gonna fat it out there just short of the green which is probably where your shot from 180 was going to go anyways. So the biggest impact that you've had on me personally
0: is, this was, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, I hit my four iron off like every tee box, everywhere. I literally, there's a quote from someone I was playing with, playing in like a match play thing. And this guy turned to me and was like, I've never seen a good player hit four iron off this tee. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. I want to keep, I'm keeping the ball in play. And like, I'm not, you know, I never hit my driver, hit it like two, three times around. And then when I saw your stuff and we talked and you're talking about dispersion patterns with drivers and the advantages of that. Like I started hitting driver all the time. It's amazing when you start actually using something, you get better at it. So I I became a good driver of the golf ball. And now it's like one of the most important things for my game. And I play a lot better and it's a lot
1: easier. So like, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're you're welcome, I guess. And it's interesting because obviously I entered Q school somewhat just to kind of get a little information on actually applying decade and how hard it is to actually do. And it's really hard, but I was paired to the kid, the first two rounds at, I might've been, yeah, it was the first two rounds at first stage. And he for sure hit it 30 yards past me with the driver, but he was hitting three iron off of every single hole. And I was hitting it 20 or 25, 30 yards past his three iron. And it was just super interesting because I, you know, I didn't say it to him, but I was thinking to myself like, I effectively hit the ball further than you right now because you're handicapping yourself, and the golf course was so wide open, like you weren't going to get driver. It wasn't going to get in trouble. I mean, there sure there were a couple holes that it might be ideal to drop back from if necessary, but overall, he literally hit it off of I would assume ten out of the fourteen tee shots, and so as a result, like. I had a, a shorter distance, so I effectively hit the ball further than. Him, and I'm a 46 year old amateur. <laughs> it was just they don't you don't realize how much you're handicapping yourself because the the main like logical fallacy people make in golf is they compare one outcome to one outcome. So you that kid you're hitting four iron, three iron, whatever off the tee because you're like, well, I'll just hit this in the fairway, but driver won't be in the fairway. And kind of what we were talking about yesterday on 14 out here at Pinehurst was. If your shot pattern is 65 yards wide and even up there, it's super narrow, but it's like 27 yards wide and the fairway's going to accidentally get in the way of half of your shots. That's where you're going to score. And then you're not to screw up the other half, but four iron, you're just giving up and you're going to hit about the same amount of greens regulation, but even the amount of greens regulation you're going to hit, your proximity is going to be destroyed. Where do you think this kind of like, cause I see that a lot. I mean, it
0: feels like it's one way or the other. Like everybody hits a driver when they shouldn't hit driver. And they just hit it, make take a bunch of penalty strokes, or they just hit, you know, irons all the time and they leave all it. Like, why do we do this? But it seems so common.
1: It's super interesting you say that because when I first created this back in 2014, I caddied for Wills Altoris when he won the Texas Amateur. And it was played at Brook Hollow, which is a fantastic, old, shorter, tighter golf course. And he had already played his practice rounds. And then we went out and played a practice round because I kind of caddied for him last second the day before it started. And it was just interesting because I changed 12 of the 14 clubs he was going to hit off the tee boxes because here he was. He was going to hit, you know, four and sandwich to all of these par fours because he thought, well, I'll just hit four and in the fairway sandwich on the green. And I'm like, yeah, but you might hit driver to 20 yards off the front edge and chipping is so much better than anything. And so when you can get it up and around the green, it's the way to go. And then on all the par fives where it had these pinching bunkers. He was going to challenge those with driver because it's cool to hit driver nine iron to a par five as opposed to three with six iron. And so it really does become, I mean, the decision-making process, it really is mathematical. I've got kind of a joke that I say all the time, but every decision you make in life is based in math, whether you realize it or not. Even to something as simple as should I cross the street right now, it's really a mathematical decision. Will that car hit me? hundred percent, no. Then you cross. If it's even one percent, I hope you just wait the car out. So... We're constantly weighing odds and expectations and really just taking Mark Brody's math from strokes gained and applying it to shot patterns. And then it's it's interesting because the non-uniformity of golf course design is what makes the game so hard to learn how to play strategically. But then it's also what interjects the ease of figuring out how to play it. Because now I, I know most of the time you're not going to get a 480 yard hole with 30 yards between legs. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. They'll give you the proper amount of room width. I try not to use the word width very often because it gets misconstrued so often. But they'll give you the right amount of room based on the length of the hole. Or it's a Greg Norman course and it's just really hard. Like you, you, you just find things like that, and it's it's like Beth Page. There was 58, 60 yards between the deep rough on most of the holes. Like you should hit driver. But you're going to, if you don't hit it good, that's in play. And you see a lot of holes like that where that to me is what great golf courses are with, you know, upon more like analysis and thinking about it. You see some courses that narrows down to 47 or 50 yards and it's like, well, that's just stupid. It's not driver. You're going to hit it in the junk too much. But so what are you supposed to hit two iron, two iron or even make it a three shot hole? Mathematically, it might be correct.
0: Well, let's talk about that decision-making process because we were playing with Mark Brody. One of the interesting things we talked about, the difference between like hitting driver to try to go from 100 yards out to 70 yards out and how statistically that would never make sense.
1: If you're challenging something, I want you to get it as close as you can. But if you're going to be challenging a hazard by getting it to 80 yards instead of 120, that difference doesn't matter. Makes sense. So, out.
0: yeah. So it, it's just this idea of being smarter. So how do you decide, like, what is statistically important enough of when you go, you know, bring it back shorter or go farther? Like, what matters?
1: It, it, it's funny because it's a kid named Chad Mersbacher who played for the University of Tennessee. He sat through my seminar and he used to just teach all these principles to look for. And he told me after the, the session, he's like, you know, you could just turn this into a flow chart, like a decision tree. And it really is that formulaic. If there's 65 yards between penalty hazards, you know, for the average, you know, I shouldn't say average for a good playing male who hits it over 270, these numbers pretty much hold true. If you hit it under 270, you should probably hitting driver almost everywhere that a hazard doesn't cross. And most people correctly do that. But once you start hitting it over 260, 270, if there's not 65 yards between penalty hazards, that's your first thing like, okay, I've got to think a little bit here and then if there there are and the fairway doesn't pinch to less than 40 yards between the bunker and trees or trees like i really don't need to see anything else about the hole it's probably going to be driver 98 percent of the time but if there's 57 yards between penalty hazards that's a hole that's typically going to be 420 yards or less they're trying to entice you to make the correct decision to hit less club off the tee and it really becomes you know just a formula and I, I mean i just to send someone to a a, a YouTube video, but I've got a 30 minute YouTube video called it's for the college golf coaches, but it's NGCAA driving video, I think. And if you just search Scott Fawcett on YouTube, you'll find it. And it literally just walks you through the entirety of tee shot selection because it really is pretty generic for the most part. Do you feel like that's the quickest gains that people can make is by just looking at their tee shot strategy? I mean, it's certainly one of them. I mean, there's just, it's so interesting because I do think a lot of what I teach is common sense, but nobody actually does it. And so really using the data, most importantly, the the shot link images, a lot of just the raw shot patterns laid over holes, you'd have to be pretty stubborn to not finally (laughs) relent and stop banging your head in the wall. So there's just so many things that I think that I teach that are simple little one-liner but they're based in math, based in strategy, based in, in just fact. And I, I really do. I hate saying it because <laughs> every time I tee caddy for somebody, they basically play better than they typically do given their shot pattern. And it's just because we don't make emotional decisions. That's really it. At the end of the day, we're removing emotion from decision-making.
0: Yeah. Which I, I think golf is one of the best sports for Helping you bring emotion into your decision making, 100%. right? Right, because there's a, there's a past, there's a history that we're all bringing into every shot. Whether that is you played this hole in the past, or just the last few holes you made a double bogey or you made a birdie, both have all these different impacts, which bring that in of like, oh, I should do, you know, I'm
1: going to change my strategy this sure. way, or like, well, you just have all these preconceived notions about something. Like even at first stage, it was at Firewheel in, in Dallas, the fourth hole is probably one of the worst holes I've ever seen in my life. It's way too narrow. But when I was looking at the scoring average leading into it before I went and played a practice round, like it was a lot lower than I was expecting. And I was just, I was pretty confused. Well, once I showed up, I realized that they had cleaned out 20 yards of hay on the right hand side that was between this river and these trees. It used to only be like 40 yards wide between out of bounds and basically death. But now it's still not good, but you can find your ball over there in the right in this, this roughly 20 yard area, right of the cart path. And it was just interesting because, like, it wasn't making any sense to me whatsoever. And then once I saw it, I'm like, oh, okay, the hole's still hard, but you're going to find your golf ball unless you hit a really awful shot. Whereas before, I mean, 20%, 25% of the time, you know, 10 years ago when I played it in Q school, you would literally just lose your ball. It, and I played it as a three-shot hole. I played it seven iron, four back then. And I knew I couldn't play it. it. was I think it was like a 4.12 scoring average last year. It's like, I know I can't play it to that hitting seven air and four. And I honestly was like, am I wrong? Yeah. And then I showed up and realized they'd totally changed the hole. And again, that's just like, you would, the point of that is like, you're talking about emotion, like bringing that. I literally fretted about this hole for a month. I think we've
0: all done the same thing, right? Like we've all done that where there's a stupid hole and you just think about it weeks prior and then you get to it and you're like, Oh, yeah. Never mind.
1: <laughs> but it's <laughs> great, much. but it keeps
0: you up at night, yeah, right? Absolutely. So let's talk about your summer. Uh, you played the Mid-Am. You played Q School. What was more challenging or like what was tough when you were out there? Like what was the hardest part?
1: You know, it's interesting because yeah, I had surgery on my neck last December. I really hadn't played any golf in four or five years and had surgery. Got to film pretty good. So I played the Texas Amateur. honestly, is where the first place was. And I shot 75-77. And honestly, I was really... Disappointed. I I picked good targets, but man, this is really the first time I've tried to play since teaching decade. And I was I was blown away at how hard it is to do. I knew it was hard, but really just being committed to. I mean, aiming a nine iron away from a pin, but then more importantly for me was just hitting balls off of in my simulator at my house, just off of a flat piece of astroturf. I didn't realize how hard just uneven lies would be, and it's just amazing how people ask me like, "What should I do to lower my scores?" I'm like, "Play a lot more." Like. Hmm. And I know that's hard to do with schedules, money, just everything, but no, the- but it's so true. It's like you,
0: you get good at what you practice, right? So this is, this is my analogy for why we should improve our practice. If you want to get better at something, you should do that thing a lot. So theoretically, we should play tournaments a lot, right? Absolutely. However, we can't. We can't because of money. We can't because of time, blah, blah, blah. So we need to improve the way that we practice because we, can't do the thing that we need to be doing The right?
1: yeah. well, one that was worse. so after the state and when i've just really considered just a total failure i uh i did change how i practiced and i still didn't have enough time to play but i did force myself to get behind a lot more shots go through my whole pre-shot routine that mental chatter just the timing of kind of when to pull the trigger committing to really practicing on committing on the range to hitting a shot at a tree or a pin or a lip of a bunker just whatever it was really focusing on trying to actually center my shot pattern on something to get just that mental chatter more locked in then you know like a month after that i've shot 66 to be low at the us mid-am qualifier by four so it was like a great improvement basically overnight for that then at the us Mid-Am, like you say I, I played pretty good in the uh in the stroke play and it's just it is it's just interesting how you just slowly start building actually the usm qualifier was first and i missed making a playoff by a shot so it was like that was Progress from the state am, and then also the U.S. mid-am. And then I would say the U.S. mid-am was still more progress to go to pre-qualifying where I shot 69, 70, 69 and finished like ninth. And it was just it, it was interesting because I would say my approach play, I drove it really well, but my approach play was horrific. But I didn't ever let that manifest itself forward on the next shot. It's like, I know this is going to be bad. It's I've got a funny saying, I think, in my opinion, where like, if you know something bad's going to happen when it happens, can you actually be mad about it? In 18 holes of golf, you know something bad's going to happen, and yet we all, not we all, but for the most part, we all get really mad at some point during a round of golf, and it's like, (laughs) you knew that was going to happen. Now, it sucks that it happened on this specific shot, but you knew over the course of 18 holes, certainly over the course of 72 holes in a tournament, it's going to happen. So you just look at a guy like Tiger like... People say, you know, I do this deal where I, you know, if I, if I get mad, I've got 10 seconds to be mad and then I let it go. Like, that's fine if you do it. Mm -hmm. I don't think you probably do it, but you look at Tiger and sure he would cuss or slam a club or get mad. But he really, at that point, then he was done with it. He was not going to carry that forward and make an emotional decision after that. Or more importantly, like, well, shoot, I'm, I'm too over. I'd better get it back here, so all of a sudden you're going to start taking a more aggressive line with a nine iron or a six iron, trying to force birdies, as opposed to like, well, two over, might as well. Yeah, I had a, a player at, at second stage. He shot, he shot two over in the first round. He was three out of, outside the number. And what I had to ask him I was like, did you think was there a chance you could qualify and make it by five shots? He's like, sure. I'm like, then nothing's changed. Uh, yeah, we've got to play good from here. But nothing's technically changed. You still can do what you thought you could do and make it right around the number. And just using like little mental tricks like that on yourself, it's sure it's BS, but it's actually based in truth. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to this
0: podcast. I just want to jump in with a quick note. If you have not seen our latest project that we just released, it's called Practice Secrets. It is a really simple 14-day challenge that you can go out and do to drastically improve the way that you practice and learn this game to become more efficient and really use your time wiser so you can get better faster. It's our latest training program. Head over to GolfScienceLab.com. Click the training button, and it's right at the top there, Practice Secrets. Check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. And let's get back to this episode. Do you kind of believe the distribution curve thing of, like, on shots, like, you're going to have bad shots, you're going to have good shots, you're going to have a lot of shots in the middle? On scores, you're going to have bad shots, you know?
1: But again, this is where it's so interesting is, like, Tiger, the constant, you know, people say he should never have left Butch, and whether that may or may not be true— no matter what, by definition, half the time, Tiger shot his scoring average or higher. So even though the, the worst 20 percentile of his golf was still amazing golf, for him, it felt like you or I shooting 78 or whatever that number is. Yeah. So for his experience, it sucked. Yeah. And so he's like, I can get rid of that, which... There is, I mean, in my opinion, there is an upper limit on perfecting this game just because of the outside influences of nothing else. Like a robot can't even play the game perfect. And so much of trying to move. Unfortunately, golf (laughs) attracts nothing but type A idiots. And so we all think we can perfect this. The only game that really can't be perfected is actually who's attracted to this game. It's pretty much awful. (laughs) Did you or have you
0: changed anything in decade since this summer and doing all these tournaments yourself?
1: No, I will say, though, over the last two years, I mean, the math is the math. No, I mean, I've caddied enough for people. I've played enough just home golf. Like, I've played enough golf to know, like, it's, it's correct. It, it basically spits you out a correct target within a yard or so by using a formula. So nothing with that's changed, but definitely over the last year, maybe even year and a half, I've really changed to focusing on the psychology of it more. I've definitely realized that, I mean, picking the target, the math of it's not that difficult. Now, actually trying to put it there, that's really hard. So the content within the app, it's literally the reason I entered Q School, just to be able to figure out. When you're caddying, you're having a, like a utopian experience. Mm-hmm. I can think clearly, hey, buddy, that's okay. You hit it in the water. We'll go up there and... <laughs> Say far, but and you actually mean it, like you believe it. Whereas if you're hitting it, you're like, "Mm, shut up right now because you're kind of you're kind of annoying me. But figuring out how to make that content from those experiences to then show the player, like, again, I know what you're doing here. Again, I caddied for for Zach Boshu, who was the number three man at Oklahoma State behind Victor and Matthew. Great players, won the Canadian Amateur twice. I'm not super close with him. I mean, I really had never met the guy before, but I, I, I've reached out to him from, I knew that he likes what I teach. And so I reached out to him after I missed at first stage and said, if you want me to caddy, it's a course I used to play at caddy him." but I wasn't close enough when like it with will, I could call in real time. Like, dude, I know what you're thinking. Stop doing that. And I knew I wouldn't make him mad with Zach. I was like, I don't really know where my boundary is here. So I really didn't say a whole lot with regards to psychology, but after we finished the 72 holes and he missed by three, we got to the, to, the, to the parking lot, and I was like, Look, dude, in my opinion, you didn't play very well at all this week and only missing by three. Like, second stage, man, it's hard. You got to play, you have to play good. You have to play great, but you can't play average, and you kind of played average for you. And, but I'll tell you, I also don't believe you totally committed to the targets we were talking about. He was like, What do you mean? I said, Well, if the pin was on the left, your shot had a, a propensity to actually be shaping towards the hole, and big misses were always going towards it, whether the pin was on the left or the right. And I was like, I'll pick out one shot specifically. It's number seven, our 15th hole, excuse me, actually, was seven in the, in the third round, 240-yard par three, the pin's on the left in this kind of back left area with some bunkers left and then a hazard left. Wind was 20 off the right, and I'm like, look, dude, start it right of the green, and it needs to finish in the middle of the green. Left half of our shot patterns where we're gold, right half, easy up and down. And he hits a pretty big hook, shot like he really hadn't hit all week, and goes in the hazard left. Didn't really say anything, but I asked him afterwards, I was like, that shot right there, because I know as a player, like I'm thinking, this is money. It's, it's a perfect little five iron, the way that the wind was going to work. This thing is going close. And he's like, that's exactly what I was thinking. That's the difference. Tiger, I've got this clip where Tiger says, you know, I, I, play, aggr- I play aggressively, but I play aggressively to my spots, which might be more on the conservative side. And that is the difference. I would say Zach on that particular shot did not play aggressively to his spot. But what's therapeutic about it for a guy like that is I hadn't mentioned that shot once to him and I called it a day and a half later, like that shot you were trying to, you hoped it floated over there by the pen. And this was a guy after, before I just said, did you really play committed to all of our targets? He's like, I think so. I was like, how about this shot? He's like, oh my God, for sure. Wasn't I'm like, I think that probably permeated more of your game Then you realize just based on what I was watching.
0: Because like when you say like aim at conservative targets, you actually mean aim and try to hit it at conservative targets, not like aim there and then try to fade it into the hole.
1: That's literally exactly what I say sometimes. I'm like, I I need you to pick to have this target and then actually try to hit it there. I've got a deal tomorrow in my speech where I'll I'll literally have I'm going to ask all the, the, the teachers who played professional golf to stand up. And then I'll say, it's after, you know, explaining a decade. Now, any of you guys, have you ever picked targets like that and then actually hoped you hit it by the pin? And I guarantee you 100% of them are going to sit down. We all do. We all do. But Tiger, I truly believe that Tiger's, I mean, again, I've looked at all of his shot length data. Like this dude actually centered his shot pattern where it's supposed to go. You look at thousands of shots, you can figure it out. That guy, and then actually says it, I play aggressively to my spots. That's, I'm not gonna say that's the difference. He's really good at golf, but I really believe that's one of the key differences. I mean, I know it's one of the key distinctions that people make and, and, or that he made between the average PGA tour player and a great one. And that's again, where the mental scorecard that we track in the decade app is really the most important stat I want people tracking, which is basically, did I have a target shape distance and did I pull the trigger committed? That's it. And that number will always come back like 90% of shots people will say they were committed to. I mean, if you're scoring average of 70, 80, that means, you know, eight times during a round, seven times during a round, you're not committed to the shot you're trying to hit. That's, that's, that's way too many. There's no chance Tiger was at 90%.
0: Uh, what's the plan? Are you gonna keep doing tournaments here? Are you are gonna keep? Are you gonna give it a give I it another really go be around.
1: Honest, it's it's interesting because I really did just enter Q school, and I mean not as as a joke's the wrong way to say, but basically sure. as a joke, like it's I, an experiment. I had no intention of playing golf. Like I've got two kids, I'm 46. I'm not going to South America. And people didn't realize like if I'd made it to final stage, you still have to finish like top five to get starts in like the first twelve events. Like I had no intention of actually playing professional golf, but it was fun. I did physically feel pretty good. I mean like yesterday walking 18 holes out here and playing like I felt good. So, you know, I've always kind of had the little thought in the back of my head about Champions Tour or whatever nonsense, mm-hmm. but I can't just start that at 49. I, this year was definitely like I played enough golf to realize it's going to take a couple years to knock the rust off to be able to be competitive. So, kind of, yeah. I mean, I definitely want to go light for a year or two to not wear my body back out. But then definitely the next, you know, 48 and a half on try. I don't know.
0: Being around enough good players as you have catting, what is it going to take for you to knock the rust off? What does that mean?
1: For me specifically, I mean, I quit my golf club two years ago. I literally have not practiced my short game in two years. I mean, I'll go out to places and hit balls and putt, but I have not hit a chip on a practice facility in a couple of years. So really prioritizing that, which is funny because I tell people, don't worry about your chipping so much. Mine is so subpar compared to my level of play. But then honestly, there's just a few things physically. My hips are still a little bit locked up, which I think was causing me to early extend, meaning get a little bit close to the ball, which is embarrassing as I say on a podcast. I have an occasional shank. And you know I hit a couple actually during Q school. And it was funny because the guys at play were like, oh and i was like don't worry dude i expect to hit one of those every other day that's not going to phase me a bit and they're like oh my god what you like you're 46 you're an amateur like what are you doing you've got the shanks and you're in q school like i guess so a few things physically i need to get a little bit better internal rotation a little bit better just cardiovascular health to, or to you know fitness to feel a little bit better with walking and everything but then Just playing. I mean, honestly, having having a hanging lie with a foreign. I mean, there was this one par five specifically at at, uh, Firewheel had about two twenty, two thirty every single day. But you're going to be downhill, ball slightly above your feet, and I'm just over this. I'm like, hey, I felt like the hosel was just leading straight into this thing, (laughs) and there's a lake right. I'm like, everything about this shot, I'm hating, (laughs) but I can't lay up from two thirty. And so that was, honestly, the one day that I didn't hit the drive as good and I had three wood in, I was thrilled because I'm like, there's no puzzle on this thing. That's awesome. Well, I mean, it, it's it, it's
0: super interesting. So you have a simulator, you play off simulator golf, right? Mm-hmm. So you're good at I hit a driving, balls, yeah. you're
1: good at irons. It's those playing skills you got to work on. 100%. And that's honestly, it's it's interesting because the thing that's outside right here, it's the, the mat that's got yeah Yeah, yeah. it's it. like slope. The, Something. Conrad Conrad the Stanford... I think it was Conrad, the Stanford coach, saw what I was posting on Twitter. He's like, dude, you need one of these. Yeah, And I hadn't seen one yet, but I thought it looked like there was too much slope on it. But he's like, you need to put one of these in, in your simulator and, and hit balls off it. And just seeing it, I'm like, it is pretty extreme. Yeah. But I was thinking that it would be great for the extreme, but then I could probably put like a brick or two under one side and soften it a little bit but uh, i mean 100 percent. that's one thing i've thought about doing too in this in my the backyard of this house in a building is putting a like a mound to where i actually could hit balls off of each side and put like a net out there like it like you see with a batting cage or pitching net like put that out there with this little mound to actually hit balls uphill downhill side hill off of it so you should do like the top golf like at the end of the range how they have the massive net you should do that like who's that guy in the, that has this
0: huge 30 Where's foot the, high the,
1: net in his I mean, backyard i don't see why not I bet it backs up to a cemetery, so if I miss it, it's not going to matter. <laughs> oh, man. That sounds too good. Well, I mean, I think
0: you're a great case study, though, in that because, like, the playing skills are some of the hardest stuff. Because it takes time, right? It takes time. It takes reps in context. Like, that's the stuff that for us that have jobs and, like, do life, or, like, it's
1: difficult. Yeah. This is not I mean, job, you just can't right? fake it. I mean, again, like... I'm lucky that I did play professional golf for a long time. So I've, I can knock off the rust in my game. And, you know, this gets back to the whole reinstated amateur playing the U S mid-am type stuff. Like the thing I'll say that was great for me personally this year was playing more golf. Like it made me a better human. Yeah. (laughs) I exercised, I got a trainer. I didn't drink. Like there's a lot of positives, not even just golf related that helped me personally quite a bit. And, you know, you see, like I had dinner with George Gankus last night and, and, It's the first time I've ever been called sick before, but Gigi's like, bro, I thought it was sick that you entered Q school. And I was like, you know, I didn't really think that much about it, but I've had a couple of different instructors come to me like, man, that's impressive. Like, you know, you've got people on Twitter that don't like you. You're going to go enter the medium. That's one thing. Like enter Q school. Like, what are you doing? And so I could have made a total fool of myself. And honestly, I'm really glad I missed it first stage because second stage at Craig Ranch, it was about 35 degrees. And I would have, I would have 100% finished dead last had I made it through first stage because that was not going to be good for me.
0: Dude, that's what it's all about is, is learning and experimenting and testing. Like that's, that's what we do. And like having the mindset to be able to fail, I'm using air quotes here. Like, failure is what learning is. It is. So, if you can't do that, you can't learn and grow. So, good luck. Right?
1: Well, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like a Tony Robbins poster, you know, failure is learning, but it is. I mean, it, it, you really can't, and you have to give yourself room to fail in order to, to, to grow. Like, it's, it's a cliche, but it's true. It's funny because there's so many of the old cliches. Like, I think it was Rotella that was, you know, the original guy with cocky swing, conservative target, and all these old things that is just like, I guess. But then in going back and rereading a lot of the psychology books that I read when I was younger, it's like, dude, it was all right there. I didn't do it. Like all of the work was right there in the pages, but then I just absolutely did not apply any of it. And that's what I try to, you know, there's a guy, Tim Ferriss, that talks about if he gets writer's block, he tries to write as though he's talking to a friend of his that has that problem. And so I really try to create all of my content as though I'm talking to my 25 year old self, Where it's like, what would I have needed to hear? And it's like, well, you would have been pretty black and white and probably in my face saying, buddy, here's the shot pattern. If You want to hit it seven or an it, go for it. But you need to show me on track, man, that you can do it in practice. And then we'll discuss how that works in a tournament. And just nobody will actually have a shot pattern that makes course management actually come out mathematically correct to be air quotes aggressive. You know, it's like Brody. And I think the best soundbite on course management, actually, like we were talking about yesterday, was super aggressive off the tee and then conservative into the greens. You know, the non uniformity of golf course design makes me not like saying things like that. That's a great nutshell. I totally agree with it, but aggressive into the greens, if it's pebble or versus St. Andrews makes all the difference in the world. And so it's, it's hard because people try to pin you down to an answer on something. Sometimes on something that the only correct answer is it depends. That's where 99% I get my own myself in my own trouble on Twitter by saying, giving an answer or not giving an answer when the only answer is it depends, but that's just a non-answer. So I should probably just delete my account, I guess. I just solved it right here, Cordy. Keep, keep,
0: <laughs> keep going, Scott. Keep going. <laughs> keep trying. We'll follow you again next year as you make the trifecta. Maybe you can do the USAM, the mid-AM, maybe get in the four ball as well, do Q school. I don't know. Like Let's, let's see the whole roundabout thing. because I've played
1: in all thing. the USGA events except the USAM this summer, and I, I missed that playoff by one, and I was – and I was mad because it would be kind of cool to have played in the vast majority of them. It's impressive. Me. Yeah. It's cool. It's cool. Playing that open here at Pinehurst, shot fair seventy nines. It was
0: great <sighs> to relive those memories with you yesterday as we walked around Pinehurst.
1: I will say, in Cordy, uh, we we played one hole in Hazeltine Simulator. He got up there dead cold with his his ponytail and high tops on, and he striped driver three fifty yesterday. He joined us on number nine. Promptly hit it to fifteen feet and made it for birdie. I'm like. Apparently, this guy plays the first hole this really is great. well.
0: great. I like playing golf with Scott because it's at Hazeltine or Pinehurst, apparently. <laughs> so the next time will hopefully be just as That's good.
1: Right. We need to find something at Augusta and yeah. to schedule ourselves
0: <laughs> here. That would be great. Sounds like the next session is starting. We're here at the Golf.com Top 100 Summit. Scott is presenting tomorrow, so excited to listen to that. But, Scott, this has been uh, this has been fun. Thanks for hanging out. Appreciate it as always. Thanks, buddy. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Make sure to go check out what Scott is doing. Uh, Twitter, he's at Scott Fawcett. If you want to say thanks for for him for sharing all this, sitting down i that would be so cool if you take the time to do that make sure to check out what he's doing with decade we have a video on the post along with this so make sure to go check that out so much good stuff can't recommend learning more about decade and just taking your course strategy a bit more serious maybe this coming year uh, do a little research do a little study and try to figure it out so you make smarter decisions and placing your best golf in 2020. This episode was hosted by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker at Golf Science Lab is also where you can find it. Instagram at Golf Science Lab. Facebook Golf Science Lab. Make sure to go follow along. Lots of good stuff. We are just working our hardest to make the best content possible to help you play your best golf and explore everything the folks are doing in this industry. This episode was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Published Productions, and we will see you all next week.